Hello, world. This is Chris Abalo's podcast experiment, and I am Chris Abalo. Welcome to the show. Thank you for subscribing to the show wherever you get your podcasts, and also on YouTube where you can get video episodes every Monday, except for this one. This is an audio-only episode, but we'll get to that in uh, just a moment. Thank you for also following the show on Instagram, TikTok, at Cape Pod. Very much appreciated. Video clips going up basically all the time, almost every day. Well, weekdays. Let's put it that way. Weekdays, you can catch a lot of video clips. And this week, there will be some recent clips from the 2023 run thus far. Because, as I said, this is an audio-only episode. And why is it sound? Why is there so much environmentally going on, like a helicopter taking off? And wind and environment. Well, I'm recording this episode in New York City. That's right, the capital of the world. I am actually facing the Hudson River, just above Hudson River Park. My thought was to do this episode while walking the streets of Manhattan because, number one, everybody's either crazy and talking to themselves or they're wearing AirPods and they look like they're talking to themselves. So I basically blend in with everyone. But it's kind of a landmark day. And if you follow me on Instagram at Chris Sells Out, then you may have seen my post because I'm recording this on May 18th, 2023. And 20 years ago, That night changed my life, certainly the course of my life, and I want to tell the story of that, and I hadn't really planned on it until today. I happen to be in the city today for something else, and it only dawned on me last night, oh my God, tomorrow's the 18th. Wow, it's been 20 years since the Yellow Matter Custard concert, and I'll get into exactly uh, the details of that, but because it was such an important night and because I was in the city, I said, oh, you know what, because I'm feeling all these things, I mean... Granted, I had an episode planned. There's an episode ready to go. Myself and the great Ming Chen sitting down doing an episode together. Him talking about the convention circuit and everything else he's been up to. Adventures in Dubai and Hawaii, going to these conventions. Lots of good stuff. So that'll go out next week. That's Cape 226. But that was ready to go for today. It was going to be 225. But I was kind of um, not emotional. Uh, and I, I don't want to say the feels. Because I'm too old to use that expression. No, I'm, just, I'm not going to call it the feels. But I was, uh, I was just kind of moved today thinking about this. And I've talked about it in bits and pieces over the years. But I thought, well, let me actually explain it. And rather than going home and recording this in my home studio, I thought, well, hey, ambiance. I can tell the story in the city where it happened. And you will hear the sounds of New York City. The sights and smells. Well, you'll have to leave that up to your imagination. But I thought, well, this will be fun. I'll record the episode on my phone. I'll do the best I can to make sure that the sound quality is ultimately as clear as possible. I was actually going to walk. I was on 9th Avenue, 10th Avenue. But frankly, it was too windy. It's actually unusually cold. It's 52 degrees tonight, which is weird because it's going to be June in two weeks. So it is uh, unusually cold. And the wind didn't help. Granted, I'm fine. I'm always wearing a leather jacket, so I'm cool. But it uh, it's, should be noted that's unusually cold but the wind was really the problem and I said well no one's going to listen to me talk first of all for this unplanned spontaneous solo episode but also if it's windy that's just going to be annoying to listen to on headphones in the car 
regardless. Granted, this... I don't, I don't know what that is. Is that like a power washer? Or is that a helicopter? The helicopter that took off land? I have no idea what's going on. But I thought, for the sake of capturing everything I'm kind of thinking and feeling on the day when I'm feeling it, I said, you know what? Let me just record this on my phone. Fun fact, before we get into the uh, main story, as it were, the, the main subject of the episode, because I don't think I've mentioned this, but the original Cape 101 and Cape 102 recorded at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. I don't exactly remember which one. I don't remember. I remember the time frame, but I don't remember exactly when I recorded them. Oh, it's another helicopter. Okay. If you're wondering, that's another helicopter taking off. Uh, those were actually recorded on my phone. They were very intimate episodes where I was kind of looking back on things and I was home for the holidays. And yeah, now I'm walking again just for the sake of getting away from some of the noise. Oh, I mean, <laughs> if you've ever been to New York City or the city as we call it, then, you know, there's no escaping the noise. But I thought, well, let me move a little bit and then hopefully things will quiet down. There's a bit of a breeze though, so I'll do my best to to keep the volume of that down. The interference is down, so this sounds good. Anyway, uh, back when... So, Kate took a break after 100 episodes in August of 2016. And my thought was, well, I'm just going to stop for a little bit and then kind of regroup, and I'll start doing it again in 2017. Well, we started doing the only podcast that matters again at the beginning of 2017. Recorded those episodes uh, during the holiday season while I was home. The end of 2016, beginning of 2017. So I thought, well, that will be my primary thing because we're going to launch that the first Friday of January. And then in February, I'll bring Kate back. And then just for various reasons, I didn't. But I recorded two episodes on my phone. And the reason I was inspired to do that, fun little fact, that was around the time Michael Rappaport started recording his podcast, the I Am Rappaport Stereo Podcast. And he would do some episodes sometimes that were like, 20 minutes and he recorded them on his phone like while he was sitting at LA traffic which was hysterical because I was living in LA at the time so you're hearing people's horn honks and he's you know heckling and yelling at other drivers it was actually pretty funny but I think he did maybe two episodes a week and I thought that's kind of cool because he's just doing the show he wants to do and if he has something to talk about he's going to talk about it. the episodes of 23 minutes cool if he does one with his friend or you know a guest or something like that then and they're 45 minutes, that's cool too. So that was actually my thought for the next phase of Cape, starting at Cape 101. I thought, I'll just kind of do whatever I want and figure it out because I don't exactly know. So there actually are two episodes sitting in the vault, the original Cape 101 and Cape 102, recorded on my phone, myself and then uh, my friend Dan drove past our high school, Lakewood High School, for the first time literally since the night we graduated and uh, some thoughts on that. So this is the first episode being released that was completely recorded on my phone. Just to capture the moment. Okay, so let me tell you about the exact event from May 18th, 2003. BB King's Blues Club and Grill on 42nd Street, New York City. So there was the Modern Drummer Festival that was happening out in. Okay, I don't remember where it was. I don't know, I'm not a drummer. <laughs> but Mike Portnoy. A former drummer for, well, at the time, he was current drummer of Dream Theater, now former drummer of Dream Theater, also drummer for the Winery Dogs, and like 19 other bands, uh, which I'm sure are at various levels of uh, being active. He put together this Beatles tribute, uh, kind of all-star band, to play this concert. They were going to play at the Modern Drum Festival, but they booked a club show so the general public could come check it out. Essentially for fun. 
Now, Dream Theater was one of my favorite bands for a while. And he was joined by Paul Gilbert on guitar, who at that point I knew from Mr. Big. And all I really knew of Mr. Big for a long time was To Be With You, because that was the hit single. That was the song that got played on the radio. So that's what most people to this day still know Mr. Big for. It's just this acoustic song, which is crazy because they're one of the most technically proficient bands to come out of the 80s. And they're known for essentially an acoustic ballad. It's ironic. So it was uh, Paul Gilbert on guitar and everybody did vocal duties as well. Uh, Neil Morse, who was keyboard player and vocalist for Spock's Beard, uh, who went on to a solo career. And Matt Bissonette, who is a bass player, kind of a session player, who's played on everybody's records. If you own a rock record from the 80s, <laughs> then Matt Bissonette played bass for sure. Um, and they all sang. The four guys all sang, just like the Beatles did. And it was just a full-on two-act with an intermission Beatles tribute show. So I had reached out to two of my friends who... I had actually gone with them. I don't remember how they were interested in going to see Dream Theater. Back in March of 2002, I think it was the first time Dream Theater did an evening with Dream Theater at the Beacon in New York. And they did two nights. We went to the first night. Now, one of those nights, uh, notoriously, or not notorious if you haven't heard about it, but for the encore, they played the entirety, the whole album of Metallica's Master of Puppets for the encore. That was night two. We were there for night one, so we weren't there for the night <laughs> when they first did that. Alas, I don't remember why it was they decided to go, unless maybe I let them borrow some CDs or something, but uh, myself and two of my friends, husband and wife, decided to go see Dream Theater. They were way entertained by Mike Portnoy, in part because he had a plush animal, as an animal from the Muppets, and the Electric Mayhem. Yes, I've seen Muppets Mayhem on Disney+, and I loved it. Highly recommended if you haven't watched it. Watch it after you finish listening to this episode. Okay, don't turn this off and go watch it. Okay, that can wait. This is shorter than that. That's 10 episodes. So this is one episode. Get through this with me. Enjoy this ride. And then go on a ride with the electric mayhem, so to speak. Uh, But they were way entertained. And he, he honestly is one of the most entertaining drummers to watch. I love Mike Portnoy as a showman. And he's also just one of the best drummers. I mean, now that Neil Peart from Rush has passed away, he may be the greatest living drummer. In my opinion, obviously it's all subjective, but I think he might be the greatest drummer alive. But they loved it, and obviously the band was way technically proficient, so they did enjoy the show. But they were intrigued by, oh, he's doing a Beatles tribute show? Because the husband of this couple, it's another helicopter. (laughs) I, I hope this is amusing rather than annoying. I hope you're listening to this and thinking, well, it's kind of funny because it's like we're out and about with Chris. He never does this. But it looks like <laughs> looks like one of the helicopters from Escape from New York or something. Funnily enough, here I am in New York, but it looks like one of those choppers, those black choppers that's like heading in, taking prisoners away or something. Uh, where the ADHD is rampant. So uh, they were intrigued by like, oh, Mike Portnoy is a great drummer and way entertaining. He's doing a Beatles tribute show. They were all for it. And they weren't familiar with uh, the other guys, except they knew, of course, of Mr. Big and To Be With You. But that was all they really knew of Paul Gilbert. So we got tickets to the show. We drove from Jersey. It was on a, I don't remember what day of the week it was. I think we all worked that day. And they drove in to the city. We parked somewhere up 42nd Street because traffic is traffic (laughs) heading from Jersey into New York. Uh, We got, we literally parked and just got up to street level 
just after eight. And I was hoping because I we'd been to the we'd seen definitely at least one other show at that club. I don't know if we'd been maybe twice. And we didn't know if we were going to be able to get in after showtime. So I actually called to see if the band was on. And they just started their first song. It was a few minutes after 8. So we're like, okay, cool. Let's go. And uh, we rushed in and we got down there during the, I believe it was the fourth song, She Said, She Said. And uh, after that, they kind of introduced the band. Mike Portnoy introduces everybody who's playing and talked a little bit about the show and you know what they were doing. And it was cool. Now, the last song of the first set was an incredibly faithful and just unbelievable cover of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Now, I knew Paul Gilbert was a shredder. You know, obviously one of those fast guitar players for those who are like, what the hell does that mean? Speedy guitar player, uh, guitar pyrotechnics, you know, like flashy. Because in the 80s, that's what it was. Every guitar player was trying to play faster. <laughs> that was the whole thing. It was... Not a gimmick, because you actually had to be technically proficient. So it wasn't like a special effect. You actually had to have the physical ability to play fast. So there was talent involved, as much as it's something people kind of shrug off. I think people get kind of snobby when it comes to that. But he's a bona fide guitar hero. And he does this solo for While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And aside from it being moving, I mean, I like it better than the original Eric Clapton solo. And I, I, I know people love that solo. So that might be blasphemy. But again, hey, it's all subjective. If you love that solo, bless you. But watching Paul Gilbert play this guitar solo live, which was, yes, flashy, but also moving and entertaining. Part of it, he plays with his teeth, <laughs> which was hysterical. By the way, so you can actually watch this concert on YouTube. I'm not going to put a link in the description because I'm sure it's not up there in an authorized way, but uh, you can find it. Look up Yellow Matter Custard 2003 and uh, you'll be able to find the performance. But he does a solo and it's, I'm so blown away by it. And the show was entertaining anyway between the banter of the guys and the performances of the songs. Because they weren't just doing like the singles. It wasn't like the Beatles one album, you know, with all the hits. They were playing some album cuts too. So there are a bunch of songs I didn't know, but it was entertaining as hell. But this solo just blew me away. And my friend did the the wife of the friends who I went with, I mean, she was in tears at the end of it. Not like weeping, but she was so, so moved by it. She had tears in her eyes. And we were just blown away. And that was the end of the first set. But that for me was probably, at that time, the most amazing guitar playing I'd ever seen in person. And I, from there, <laughs> literally from the, the next day, started doing a deep dive on Paul Gilbert, from his solo material to Racer X, which is the band he was in prior to Mr. Big, a band he formed after he moved out to Hollywood with some fellow students from Musicians Institute. That name might ring a bell if you've heard me talk about that before. And I was just, I, I immersed myself in Paul Gilbert just as a player and as a guitar player who at the time was good. I mean, I started playing, we'll get back to my arc, but I'd been playing for a couple of years at, at this point. And I just thought, like, that, I want to be like that. I mean, my aspiration prior to that was I want to play as tastefully as David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. The guy never plays a wrong note. That was my perception. But I loved, obviously, the guitar players from the 80s and the you know, speedy solos and you know, the flashiness and all of that. But I thought I was not that strong of a lead player. But after seeing Paul Gilbert play, I was like, well, I want to play like that. <laughs> I want to play like that guy who also played a very 
flashy yet emotional guitar solo from While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And just witnessing that was like, oh, this is crazy. And also, one of those moments, mind you, this is long before smartphones. Well, not too long. It's like four years before the first iPhone. But back then, going to concerts, you thought, oh, I'll never see this again. <laughs> so who knew? We didn't know if anyone was documenting it or if there was going to be any kind of release. Uh, fast forward a couple of months, and they did put out a CD recording, a double CD set of the performance. And I listened to that solo endlessly. And then they put out, uh, Mike Portnoy actually put out on his website an official bootleg DVD of, I guess it was the house cameras that were just running for the, for the screens in the venue. And uh, they put that out as a DVD. So I own the concert as well, which I've revisited a few times. And then because of obviously YouTube, you know, some clips have surfaced on there because there's an actual release and uh, you can watch it on YouTube, but there's a digital video and audio are actually for sale on Mike Portnoy's website, which is pretty cool, which I would encourage. That's why I'm saying you can go look up clips on YouTube, but I'm not going to support that and say, Hey, go do that. Don't pay the dude who's releasing it because Hey, that's just how I am. So now, my story, which I haven't really talked about much as far as my time as a musician, where music was the primary, where the goal was to make my living playing music, to play guitar. That's what I was going to do with my life. I was going to play guitar in a band. That was the goal. So I started playing guitar. I've always said it's 16. Technically, it's 15 because I actually I laid away my first electric guitar which is my first guitar period and picked it up on my sister's birthday. It was actually September 22nd, 1997. So it was two weeks before I turned 16. And I remember that because we picked up on the way to visit her. My sister went to college at Rutgers and we were passing by the music store on the way there. And I had enough money. So I said, well, can we stop and pick up my guitar, please? So the guitar rode with us just on the back seat, <laughs> laying on the back seat next to me up to uh, Rutgers. So, that's when I got the guitar and started learning how to play. I knew nothing about playing prior to that, but I just always round up and say, yeah, I was 16 when I started playing guitar. And I was certainly closer to 16 than 15. And that was it for me. I just always had it in my head that, well, I want to, I want to be in a band or, well, not always. <laughs> it probably started when I was like 14, 15, when I got the idea in my head about actually playing guitar. I've talked in um, many forms and many different ways over the years that, uh, you know, I got Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA cassette for Christmas of 1985. And that made me want to sing and play guitar. I never did anything about it, but that was the first initial, as I've said, Bruce is the reason I started dreaming. That was the first wave of it was, oh, I, I love this. I want to do that too. But the first actual endeavor was laying away a guitar and then taking lessons, which, well, my first foray into lessons was there was a, an acquaintance of mine who played guitar in a band. And um, it was the 90s, so it was a fairly, you know, like grunge-influenced band. But not a whole lot of guitar players in Lakewood, New Jersey, circa 1997. So he had me come to his house one day, and he showed me how to play Wild Thing and the power chords for Black Sabbath's Iron Man. So I played the hell out of those songs. <laughs> That's all I knew how to play. The three chords for a wild thing, and then that main... Everybody knows how Iron Man goes. I'm not going to imitate it for you. All right, it looks silly enough walking around speaking into my phone. I'm not going to do a lot of like... Da, 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 da. Okay, I did it. There. Happy? So, how was I going to take lessons? Well, I was 16, so 
I, I could work. <laughs> I was, you know, I was still mowing lawns and like shoveling snow and, you know, raking leaves and stuff like that. I was looking for a proper job, but nobody paid anything and guitar lessons weren't cheap. And my parents didn't have the money for guitar lessons. Um, that wasn't them being like stingy or anything. It's just, you know, that's, that was just the, uh, the domestic financial situation. There was not money for guitar lessons. I was able to earn enough money for a month's worth of guitar lessons because you couldn't just get lessons a la carte. You had to pay for the whole month up front. So I was able to take a month's worth of lessons and learn how to play, you know, You Shook Me All Night Long by ACDC and a few other things. I think the riff from Crazy Train. I think I learned that. Uh, some basic stuff, stuff that I, I wanted to know because it sounded like actual music. <laughs> Even though I'm sitting in, you know, the basement playing it, it, it's a song, I knew. It wasn't just sitting and like strumming chords that didn't sound like much. These were songs that everybody knew, or at least songs I heard on the radio. So the fact that I was able to play them, or at least bits and pieces of them, was a really big deal. The next step in my evolution was actually, if there are guitar players out there who are listening, in the back of basically all the guitar magazines in the 90s, there was the six VHS set of Metal Method. <laughs> by Doug Marks, which I, again, scraped together enough money because I thought, oh, this is months worth of lessons. I will buy this and teach myself because they come with the, the sheets, with the tabs, so you can actually read the lessons. I can play it back as many times as I want. Well, I can't afford lessons ongoing, but this will be hours of lessons. This will last me for months and I will learn how to play a lot of stuff. Uh, I did and I didn't. I don't know that I made it through all six cassettes, if I'm being honest. I just don't know. The one-on-one -on -one learning has always worked best for me in everything, actually doing it, having somebody sit there. I obviously excelled way more when I took private lessons, which I started doing on a weekly basis when I was earning my own money when I was 19 and uh, finally had some money and took private lessons for the next four to five years. Uh, made huge strides because just to have somebody sit there and actually give you feedback or even give you some uh, some suggestions or, or you know correct your form or something like that as far as your hand position and things like that because those are things I had to correct anyway because I wasn't just you know I was <laughs> making my hands weren't in the most comfortable uh, position which made it more difficult to play just to uh, paint in kind of a broad stroke in that way. So anyway, uh, I did have what, two or three bands, I think, in high school between sophomore year, which is when I got my first guitar, and senior year, two or three bands, and then had another one going that I started up at the end of 2001, and we rehearsed. We never got out and actually played any gigs because it was tough to get guys to commit to even rehearsing once a week. That was all I was asking. I mean, and it was the same in high school, honestly. And it's one of those things where I haven't talked a lot about my musical history on this show or on the only podcast that matters because there was a lot of, I've, I've touched on this part of it in as much as in saying that I haven't talked about it, that I've talked about, but there was a lot of, a lot of bad feelings. You know, there's a lot of disappointment, a lot of heartbreak, uh, just a lot of things to where I, I kind of didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to distance myself from it. And I basically did. The 2012 was the last time I did anything musically uh, publicly. And I just said like, okay, this isn't the primary anymore. Music is going on the back burner. That's it. You know, and at that point I was, you know, now 31 and didn't have the stomach to start another band. But what happened with this band, to take it back a little bit, in 2002, 
So I was working in a, for a big box retailer and I was closing that night. And uh, this is about, like I said, about a year into rehearsing. Hadn't played any gigs. We had some original songs. We were also rehearsing a bunch of covers just so we can get out and play. That was the whole thing. Like, well, let's get a couple of songs together so we can go out and get in front of people. You know, we'll work on some originals. We got some covers. We covered, like, What I Like About You and Just What I Needed and songs everybody knows that are popular. It wasn't like songs that maybe people would be ashamed to sing along to <laughs> or something like that. But it was like, well, let's have a, a couple of covers. I thought, like, in 2001, uh, Weezer's Green album came out, so we did Island in the Sun and Hashpipe. So we had a couple of current songs, too, that we were working on. But anyway, uh, just rehearsed. Never went out and played a gig. And uh, so I'm closing this one night in uh, late 2002. And I go on my lunch break, and I have a voicemail from the drummer quitting the band, followed by a voicemail from the bass player <laughs> quitting the band. <laughs> so the band essentially broke up by voicemail in one night. And it was like, ah, oh, great. Now what? Okay. And, you know, the, the other guitar player was... Uh, a little a little less reliable so I was like well now I just kind of need to start over again I wasn't sure about starting over yet again with another band I wasn't sure what I was going to do so I never like I said I want to be in a band you know that was always the ambition for me now my uh, the asterisk to that statement I want to be in a band is and I've said this before that I wanted to be in essentially in Def Leppard meaning a band like Def Leppard where it was a bunch of guys it wasn't one person out front. It wasn't Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band, where it's Bruce Springsteen and his band, which is still kind of like being a solo artist. It was like Def Leppard, where it's five guys in a row. There's not one guy who stands out from the band. It's a band by definition and in action, so to speak, where it's okay. These are these dudes who play music together. They seem to all be friends, and the music's great. So... That, to me, was the ultimate. That's, that was my definition of wanting to be in a band. Now, obviously, time has shown that Def Leppard is in the incredible minority. They are a rarity in that their band that's number one, number one is still around. Number two has had the same lineup for over 30 years at this point. And they genuinely are friends. And it all starts with that. But honestly, um, think about all the other bands from the 80s. I mean, Motley Crue's been around for 40-plus years. Uh, give or take, not that they've always been active, but I mean, you know, they have a founding member who just is no longer in the band as of recently. Uh, and there's tons of lawsuits, I mean, you can name most of the bands, particularly from the 80s. I mean, there's Rat and Queensryche and Great White and all these bands that have, you know, had to go to court because of, well, who owns the name and who can actually tour using this name? And then, you know, it's splitting up and bringing in, you know, hired guns and all of that to, to replace members who quit and, you know, <laughs> multiple bands touring under the same name with members from different eras it's uh it's crazy so that's not the actual you know the actual band so i it, that was never my so that was always weird to me so that was always my ambition was to be in that type of band what i thought was a band which is turned out to be a, a great example of a band but unfortunately uh my story is the most common in terms of musicians, where it's kept at it, kept trying, and things never worked out for a variety of reasons. So, you know, that's that's truly like I'm I'm among the the majority of people who've tried to do this as a career, and I have made peace with it, of course, and I still play. But uh, there's been a lot, which is why I haven't really talked about it because there's just a lot of negative feelings 
associated with doing it. But anyway, to get back to what I was saying, I wanted to be in a band. I didn't want to be a solo artist and I didn't want to be a hired gun. I didn't want to be a guitar player for hire. But at that point I said, well, <laughs> we have to try something different because these bands keep falling apart. I just don't know if I can do it. So I tried the singer songwriter thing for a little while and it didn't really fit. I tried it. It just didn't, it just wasn't me. And there's a friend of mine who was a singer songwriter type who I played guitar for him for a little while. We recorded a few things. I played with them live once at the Saint in Asbury Park. <laughs> the last time I was actually at the Saint in Asbury Park, uh, as it turns out. But none of it, it, it didn't feel like what I wanted to do. I still just wanted to be in a band. So I was not lost. I just didn't know where I was heading next in 2003. So fast forward to the Yellow Matter Custard show and way impressed by Paul Gilbert. And I'm like, oh, I just want to become like a crazy good guitar player. <laughs> so that was the goal. I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an amazing guitar player now. Looking into his history with his solo material, which I immediately got my hands on, and the Racer X albums, which I immediately got my hands on, found out he went to this place, GIT, Guitar Institute of Technology, which is part of Musicians Institute in Hollywood. Wait a minute, there's a school, like a music school, because I had the, the thought in high school, I was going to try to get into Berklee College of Music in Boston, like so many, <laughs> because which is actually where Dream Theater formed. And uh, I honestly, I wasn't good enough. And my my guitar teacher at the time, who I did, that's right, I did take lessons for a little while from someone else in high school, I forgot. Um, and it was the truth. He said, you're not going to get, like, you're not good enough to get into Berkeley. <laughs> and he was right. I could say, you know, it hurt at the time, but that was the truth. I wasn't good enough to get into Berkeley, so I didn't even apply. But then I thought, oh, once I saw Musicians Institute, oh, this is a, a program. This is a certificate. You do a year of, you know, intensive music training. And... That's it. Like, oh my God, if I just went to school for music, imagine how good I would be in a year, you know, focused study specific to my instrument, not just going to music school, but literally going to guitar college as I've, you know, I've used the term kind of jokingly, but it's the truth. It was going to guitar college. I said, wow, I could actually do this. This would be awesome. So I started looking into it, but it's still, I mean, California seemed like a, a completely different world. And I just didn't, I didn't know how possible it was going to be. It just seemed like, well, I want to do it. I just don't know how it's going to happen. Fast forward to November of 2003. I don't know if there was anything, any reason for it other than uh, they had fun doing the Beatles tribute show, but Mike Portnoy gets together a Led Zeppelin tribute show with, I don't remember who played bass and who sang, but Paul Gilbert played guitar again. And they had a show once again at BB King's. And I think they did a show in, I don't know if they did one in California or Canada or something. They did two dates for, it was called Hammer of the Gods. And these same friends and I, the three of us, got tickets to go see the show again. Actually standing outside the venue, I saw Paul Gilbert while we were just waiting, you know, in the line just to get in. And he was just kind of walking up 42nd Street and stopped to look in the window where the uh, concert calendar was for BB King's. And he's just looking to see kind of who's coming through. And I saw him. I'm like, oh, my God, there he is. And I'm like, Paul, Paul. And I'm shouting to him. And he turns and he kind of smiles and he walks up, puts out his hand and said, hi, I'm Paul. And I reached up. I think I've told this story before, but a lot of new listeners and people who may not know it. It was the one time I was 
I was nervous meeting somebody. And also the reason I said, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> never going to be that way again. I, my friends were laughing at me because my hand was literally shaking as I lifted my hand up to shake his. I um, mean, he's got giant hands. He's got like monkey hands anyway, which, you know, certainly helps us <laughs> on the guitar playing front. But I was so like intimidated and I don't, I don't even remember what I said to him. So I got to meet the guy who for the last seven months I've been doing a deep dive on and just getting really into his music and who was inspirational to me as a guitar player. And uh, the show was good that night. It wasn't as good as the Beatles show, even though I was way more familiar with Led Zeppelin's music than I was the Beatles music at the time, or at least what was performed. I knew a lot more of the Led Zeppelin songs, but um, it, it wasn't as, the show didn't have as big of an impact, but it was, there was a high bar to clear when it came to seeing these guys play again, you know, do another tribute show. Leaving that concert in, uh, again, this is November of 2003, I get a call from a friend of mine who I just happened to be looking at my phone. I mean, this one, we had like Nokia phones or something. So, you know, no smartphones. So or maybe my phone was ringing. Maybe it was buzzing, whatever. We went to, there used to be a Chevy's next door to BB King's. We were going there to eat after the show. And I see my friend called me and he said, oh, did you know that so-and-so died? I'm not going to say who, but it was um, someone I was very close to at uh, the end of eighth grade and through freshman year of high school. And kind of had a falling out at the beginning of sophomore year of high school, uh, which was a bummer. But her and I were close. We talked on the phone a lot. We actually exchanged Valentine's Day gifts. Uh, Even though it wasn't dating, I mean, there's a lot of like early, let's say, uh, young boyfriend, girlfriend kind of vibes. But, you know, it's not like anything. We never, I mean, you can't really date when you're 15 anyway. In as much as not autonomously. You can have, you know, (laughs) parents drive you somewhere, but that's not actually dating. At least as far as I'm concerned. I I really don't think that's the same as, you know, when you can actually drive and, you know, go pick up a girl, something like that. You know, I mean, I guess you get dropped off at the mall. We were at a bowling alley, actually. It's where we exchanged Valentine's Day gifts, but it was a group of friends. So it wasn't like the two of us getting together to go bowling kind of thing. Uh, It wasn't a lot to do in Lakewood. It was go to the mall, one of the malls, uh, or go to this bowling alley, apparently. <laughs> wasn't a whole lot to do uh, in the area where we grew up. Anyway, so I hadn't seen her even, since, obviously, since you know high school graduation, but her and I uh, weren't, hadn't been close for a while. And yeah, she had, she passed away from a, I, Obviously, she deserves her anonymity, so I'm not going to get into it. Um, I don't even want to specify what it is, but it's it, frankly, is a disease that people don't necessarily pass away from. It's something people can live with, but for whatever reason, uh, she she did. And uh, it was at the end of October. Her birthday was very early November. So she passed away about a week before her 22nd birthday. She was in her final year at Boston University. She was a violin player. And she was actually, I believe, first chair in the orchestra. I think, if I'm remembering that correctly, but she was part of the orchestra. She was on the dean's list, and she never got to see 22. She never got to graduate college. And, you know, at this point, around 2003, I was questioning, even, even when I'd gone to the show in May, because I'd started working this big box retail job in March of 2001. I remember being there for two years, and, you know, when you're 22. <laughs> that seems like a long time. Oh my God, I've been this job for two years. And I felt kind of like, ah, what am I going to do? You know, with the band falling apart. And I thought like, well, I'm just working and I'm not really getting closer to what I want to be doing. So what now? And then hearing this news about her, it just, it, it just 
pull things into focus for me. Well, I have to do it. I have to go to school. I have to go to GIT. I got to make this happen because I'm doing nothing with my life and hers is over. She didn't get to live hers. She didn't make it to 22. It really, and I refuse to even believe that she had died. I'm literally just in a daze at the restaurant and the entire drive home until I went home and checked the uh, newspaper from a few days before, like the previous week and saw her obituary. And, um, it was, it was shocking. Like that, at that moment it became real as much as I was in a daze and didn't believe it. When I saw her photo and read her obituary, it became real. Uh, so much so that as a, I guess as a reminder, but also because, you know, it's someone I was close to for a while, very close to, I actually clipped it out of the newspaper and it was on, I like a, um, bulletin board, a cork board in my bedroom that I had, you know, different, different things on, you know, stickers or postcards or pictures or whatever it was. Um, I had that on there for, I don't think it ever left. It might still be on there. I'm sure that that board is (laughs) somewhere in my parents' house, but I kept it up there just kind of as a reminder of, well, you're still here. You better do something with your life. You better go for what you want because you don't know. None of this is guaranteed. So it, it took a little while. I didn't go to visit Musicians Institute until June of 2004. So it was about seven months later. Uh, my friend and I went out. He came with me because he was a big movie buff and he just wanted to visit Hollywood. And uh, we went and I went on the tour of the school. I'd been in touch with one of the admissions counselors. And he gave me the tour and we walked through and it was amazing. And at the time, George Lynch from Dokken was there as a, he was just doing private lessons. And I was like, oh my God, I could get one-on-one lessons, like guitar lessons from George Lynch. That'd be awesome. You know, this is, oh, this would be so cool. And he, my guitar teacher at the time, was like, you better camp outside, like his office or whatever it is. So you make sure you get in and get lessons from him. Uh, so that began the process uh, when I went out in June of 2004, uh, came home with all the paperwork, said, how am I going to do this? Had to do, you know, the internet was still no, nowhere near what it is now. So, you know, you can, you can look stuff up, but like uh, Google was still new ish. I mean, the first time I heard of Google was like 2002 as like the search engine alternative to Yahoo. I mean, I knew people who were using ask Jeeves at the time, which probably still maybe it exists. I don't know, but I mean, we, we had a, a cable connection at the time. That was a super, that was like a crazy, like upgrade, like, oh, you have cable internet. You don't have a modem or, you know, like a, like 56 K modem or whatever it was at the time. Uh, I don't remember, but you know, you couldn't do everything on the internet. So I remember I was trying to find apartments and uh, student loans and all this other stuff. There was just a lot that was involved in getting everything going. So it was, it was a slower process because Information was still uh, analog. It wasn't all digital. It wasn't all accessible because, you know, through a device in your pocket like it is now. It was just a slower process. And it was a matter of, well, I want to do this on my own. I'm going to get student loans in my name, knocking out my parents' cosign, which was something that was you know, doable at the time. It probably was the last time in uh, American history that <laughs> that was possible. <laughs> it was 2005, 2006. Because uh, I don't know that it is possible that anybody going to school, any student is able to get loans to the Coast Center now. I, I just think uh, we've evolved away from that, uh, if that's considered evolution. But it was a slow process, and I got approved and accepted to Musicians Institute to begin the fall 2005 
semester, quarter. It was, the year was essentially divided up into quarters, 10 week quarters, with a week of exams at the end of each quarter. And then like a two and a half week break. But I didn't have an apartment in place. You know, this wasn't, there was no, there were no apartment rental websites you can just visit. You know, there was, they, the school mailed me, mailed me in a packet, along with some other relevant details, apartments that were in the neighborhood that you would call to see if they had availability. So it's me, long distance calling, which was you know, still a thing, <laughs> long distance calling all these places in around the immediate, like Hollywood area to see if they had availability. And I basically, the, the short version is because the student loan process was still in process and I hadn't found an apartment, I delayed my start. And I said, can I, I've been accepted. I contacted the, my admissions rep and said, hey, can I push back by six months because I haven't found a place? Because it could have been, because the way the quarters work out, it's still kind of like in, in six months was how they were looking at it because it's like, well, there's, you're kind of starting in that way you're starting in spring of 06 you know since you're not not starting in fall of 05 like those are the options you can't really start in winter because when they come back after the holiday break that's like the second half of that semester essentially so it was like fall or spring was when you can start so it was okay well I can start in April of 2006 spring of 06 I will start which is great because I said good I can get my suit loans in line hopefully I could take another trip to California in the meantime and find an apartment, actually go visit places, which I did do actually in January of 06 and settled on an apartment, the first apartment I moved into. And that was it. March of 2006, got on a plane, moved out to Los Angeles. I wanted to get there a month early because I wanted to familiarize myself with everything. I wanted to settle in. I wanted to warm myself up musically, get myself you know focused, practice and get uh, as much in as possible, plus settle into living alone as well. And living on my own, which was a lot more than, you know, I expected at the time. Because you don't really know. Aside from the fact it's 3,000 miles away in a brand new place where I don't know anybody. And I mean, I don't know anybody. It was a whole other, <laughs> it was a whole other experience on a lot of levels. But went to school. And as of March of 2008, I posted about it on Instagram a few weeks ago. March of 2008, 15 years ago. Graduate from Musicians Institute. Ended up doing 18 months after the first year. I took a six-month leave of absence because I was able to get, I was able to qualify for California state grants, which meant I would have to take out less student loans. But they weren't going to kick in until I was essentially done with school. So I said, well, if I take a six-month leave of absence, can I, like, can I take full advantage of those grants? And they said, yes. I'm like, great. It means I'll owe less money in student loans. I will t- wait an extra six months. So I was in school for two years, only 18 months of that, I was actually attending school, but I got an associate's degree because after I got there, I said, oh, well, I could stay an extra six months and get a degree. I love this. I would love to do more of this than what I initially signed up for, but also at least I could say to my parents, hey, I have a degree in something of some sort. That's cool, right? (laughs) At least I have a degree. Yeah, I know it's a a degree in guitar. It's actually occupational arts, but you know, it's a music degree, but I have a college degree in something. Isn't that great? And I do. I have an associate's degree in occupational arts. Yay for me. But it was, it was an incredible experience. I met a lot of great people, had a lot of incredible teachers. I mean, guys whose articles I've read, guys like Tom Kolb and Dale Turner, I've been reading their lessons and you know checking out their, their books and all of that since I started playing. 
you know, I mean, their, their lessons were in the back of the guitar magazines. And, you know, I was learning how to play a lot of things from these guys. I remember getting the, the guitar survival kit, which was a book and CD set uh, written by Dale Turner and learning like blues turnarounds and things like that. Like I actually learned a lot from these guys and then actually meet them and befriend them was just a wild. Lo and behold, in spring of 07, Paul Gilbert released his first instrumental album and came back and did one-on-one lessons with students. He had to get there at the crack of dawn. <laughs> actually before, it may have still been dark. I had to line up because he was only doing so many lessons. But I got there and got a 30 minute lesson with the guy and borrowed my friend's camcorder so I was able to film it. <laughs> so I actually have a, I, this is now, this is how primitive this stuff was, well at least compared to now. It was cutting edge in 2007, but I actually took the, I think it was, I don't remember, I think it was a VHSC was the type of tape that the, uh, that the camcorder took. I brought it to Best Buy because for like a flat, like $25 or something like that, Best Buy would convert your camcorder videos to a DVD. <laughs> <laughs> so I brought this this tape to uh, Best Buy in Burbank and had the thing transferred to DVD. So I have the DVD of my guitar lesson with Paul Gilbert, which honestly I spent probably the first, it was a half hour, I spent the first 15 minutes basically asking him questions that I just wanted to know anyway. So it was kind of like an interview, which I guess I can release as an archive episode of Cape, or at least part of it. Me kind of sort of interviewing Paul Gilbert, 25-year-old Chris Abalo, talking to Paul Gilbert, circa spring 2007. Maybe. It's possible. I'm recording episodes on my phone now, apparently, so that wouldn't seem too strange at this point. No, but that was incredible to actually sit and um, get feedback from the guy and, and jam with him. And it was incredible that he did it, too. He actually made himself very accessible to the school and did a bunch of uh, workshops in the, in the performance space, you know, on, on the stage and everything with, um, with his band and would do meet and greets and, and was a constant presence at the school, which was awesome to have, just that he was that down earth and willing to give back to the school that he attended that also gave him a career. Uh-oh, hoping I don't get a copyright strike for whatever's going on. Uh, yep, it's the city, everybody. This is real, real live episode, different kind of live Cape episode. But anyway, alas, at the end of uh, my time at school, in May of 2008, moved back to Jersey because staying in LA was not sustainable. Now, basically all of this can be traced back to going to that Yellow Matter Custard concert because ended up, at, you know, with a few steps in addition to actually attending the concert, but ended up finding the school, finding out about the school, and moving to California, which opened the door to the LA Years Volume 2 when I moved back to California in 2012. Which led to, you know, the voice acting and the Cape, I mean, Cape was created in 2013 in California. This very show was created there and led to everything that's going on now. But that, the instance of going to school, moving out there and saying, I'm going to make a serious go at this, was the first time I really bet on myself and said, I can do this and I'm going to do it. And if nothing else, and, you know, my father said it to me actually when I graduated Aside for general congratulations, because I don't know that they, my parents completely understood it. <laughs> you're going to do what? And, and you're going to get a job after that? Well, hopefully I'll be good enough to get a job. But he said to me when I graduated, I remember talking to him on the phone. He said, well, you said you were going to do it and you did it. And that felt good to even get that acknowledgement. <laughs> I've never needed that uh, acknowledgement or validation from my parents, but it was nice to hear that. And I did. I said I was going to do it. And I did it. Now, granted, through a bunch of... Um, different events. <laughs> Again, music was no longer the primary. 
But that was the beginning of me doing all this. It's, it's the reason I'm still doing this. Why you're listening to me now is channeling my creativity into something and saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to dedicate myself to this. And if this is what it takes, if this is the level of investment, I'm going to do it. That's it. And this is really where it all started 20 years ago tonight. And uh, it's, it's just strange to think about, you know, there's been a lot that's gone on in this time. It's oddly quiet. So now I'm feeling almost like somber because there's a red light. <laughs> no one's honking at each other. <laughs> there's no helicopters taking off or landing. But really just thinking about that, like, wow, 20 years. And I'm thinking back to 21-year-old Chris, who, and I think that's why I was a little stirred up by it this afternoon, because the afternoon of May 18th, 2003, I didn't know that night was going to change my life, that I was going to witness something that was going to inspire me to do more with myself or put me on some kind of track at a point when I felt like I didn't have a track. I didn't know what I was doing. I think that's why I kind of got stirred up when I was in the city earlier this afternoon and thinking like, I'm going to swing by BB Kings, which unfortunately closed a couple of years ago. Um, I believe it was pre-pandemic that the venue closed. So it's a shame they're not there, but I did stop by. If you follow me on Instagram, it's actually going to be in my 2023 highlights. If you uh, see the story highlights on my profile, I took a picture of what's there now. It's uh, part of it is a target and above it is <laughs> Dallas barbecue. Uh, no, no venue has replaced BB Kings, but I did stop by and take a picture right around 8 p.m., which was showtime 20 years ago, just because, yeah, it's us you know, feeling a little, like I said, stirred up and sentimental and thinking, wow, 20 years ago and thinking about all the stuff I've done since. And um, it's just, it, it's interesting, you know, as I've talked about repeatedly on this show and on, you know, some, some guest appearances that I've done on, on other podcasts recently. In uh, as far as therapy and just the ways I'm approaching things and the ways I know myself and all of that. And um, part of that has been looking at, I was just talking about it in therapy <laughs> two days ago. Or no, I'm sorry, it was yesterday. It was yesterday morning. Wow. See, my sense of time sucks. And that's why 20 years has gone. But no, I'm totally kidding. But it was yesterday morning. And it was, um, you know, my therapist asking me, what do you want to accomplish? You know, if you thought about what you want to do between, you know, this summer between now and Labor Day. Have you thought about it? And yes, I talked about that. And he said that to me, you know, we've been going over that in a more uh, expanded sense. What do you want to do in 2023? You know, we talked about that in December. <laughs> you know, what do you want to do in your 40s? You know, and kind of thinking in those terms, because look, the time is going to pass. I'm halfway through 41. 41 is going to come and go. So 42, 43, I mean, as, as long as I'm still here, that's, that's the idea. As long as I'm alive, yeah, those years are going to come. You know, 2023, 2024, 2025. The years are going to come and go. What are you going to do with them? And it's interesting to think of the things that I've done in the last 20 years and how that concert kickstarted me focusing my creativity and actually setting a goal for myself and putting my money where my mouth is. Literally, it's expensive as hell to move to Los Angeles and stay there and go to school and uh yeah it's been 15 years so i'm still paying those goddamn student loans it's true that's not a joke <laughs> there's a little bit of a balance left got to take care of those things but anyway it, it all started 20 years ago tonight and it's no doubt one of the reasons you're listening to me right now one of the reasons this show exists and wasn't planning on doing this like i said it kind of hit me this afternoon and then I decided to post on Instagram to say like, well, 20 years ago, this Monday, Kate 225, I'll tell you the story about this concert. 
and where I was. And, you know, if nothing else, I mean, you probably at least have a passing interest in me if you're listening to this show, <laughs> but the, the podcast is a document and part of it is my life story you know, and where I am at these different phases. That's how I look back on the only podcast that matters. Well, that was us in our late twenties, early thirties, before everybody got married and had kids and all of that stuff. You know, it's a moment in time. And to kind of look back on the, the pre podcast, pre even smartphone. I mean, think about how much stuff we document now between photos and videos and even everything we post on social media. Like we have all these documents and this was a time when we weren't documenting everything. And I didn't know if I was going to be able to, you know, experience this concert again. Lo and behold, it was recorded and filmed. So now I can experience it over and over again, but it's never going to be the same. So there was definitely more attention paid. We were more attentive back in 2003 because we were present. We weren't distracted by technology and, you know, busyness. And hey, I was 21, so it's not like I got a whole lot of obligations and things going on anyway. It was just like, well, I'm going to a concert tonight. Awesome. Which was all I did back then. <laughs> <laughs> and try to get a band going. So it's, it's pretty interesting. And uh, by the way, the irony is not lost on me that I said I never wanted to be a solo artist, and yet here I am talking to you on a show that's named after me that's essentially a solo project because my, the, my podcast equivalent of a band broke up. So this is my quote-unquote solo career. Uh, the irony is not lost on me. <laughs> that's how things are. But here we are. I'm glad things are where they are. And, uh, look, I still play music. I still play guitar. I still do some lessons, you know, get some online courses and things like that because it's still a part of me. It's something I've healed since the beginning of 2022 because I kept some distance between myself and the, my musical past. And I've, I've posted occasional things, you know, on, on social media, some occasional videos on like Instagram or TikTok because I'm now kind of at peace with that. I used to, when, you know, when I not gave up on music, but decided that wasn't going to be the primary. I, you know, for the sake of my uh, emotional well-being, I put some distance between myself and it because I said, well, I don't do that anymore. And it was a very, it was just a means of protecting myself emotionally. That's what that was. It wasn't, I'm not gonna say it was unhealthy. Um, ultimately, it's something I had to heal from and, you know, some things I had to process and revisit and again, make peace with. And, you know, I'm not sorry things have turned out the way they are. I'm happy the way things have turned out because I would have done more than just play music anyway. All these other things, you know, the writing, directing, all that other stuff, it would have been in me anyway. In fact, a uh, piece of music that I wrote for my singer-songwriter friend who I mentioned way back a while ago, who I play guitar for a little bit, uh, he actually had an album that he was... He'd been recording for a while, and he wanted me to write and record some guitar parts for it. Kind of like, again, he was a singer-songwriter, but think of like the Eagles or Tom Petty. You know, there's a lot of cool guitar stuff going on beyond just strumming chords. And he wanted to add kind of some of that flavor to his album. But unfortunately, even though I wrote the parts and played them for him and he liked them, he spent so much time recording the album and it had taken so long that he decided like, you know what, I just want to finish it and put it out and that's it. So unfortunately he never used any of my parts. But some of the music I wrote during that time, I may be using it for this short film that we just shot back in March that I teased. So still doing some musical stuff and you may get to hear it because it's a part of me. I'm integrating all the different parts of me, the writer, director, the podcaster, the musician, all of it. It's all part of this collective evolution. And it just seemed right to acknowledge this. And yeah, I could have 
got home and kind of reflected and recorded this at the home studio and said, you know, well, this is me and this was a story, but I thought, well, let me capture it on the day marking the 20th anniversary of this concert. And while I'm kind of caught up in the emotion of everything, why not? Let's do it now. And I've done it. And I hope you've enjoyed it. You've certainly learned a little bit about me <laughs> and I hope it was worth it. <laughs> and this is definitely an experimental kind of episode, you know, doing this thing literally out walking the street, recording episode on my phone, but it was raw and honest and real. And I'm not going back and editing any of it. This is very, um, not stream of consciousness, uh, maybe off the cuff, I guess, but I mean, it's my story. What do I need to write it and make notes for and all that? I know what happened. I lived it already. So that'll do it. This is it. Cape 225. Thank you for listening. Once again, follow on the socials at Cape Pod, Instagram and TikTok. Look forward to the videos from uh, other recent episodes this week. You can follow me on Twitter and TikTok at Chris Abala on Instagram at Chris Sells Out and subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you're not already, please give the show five stars, a thumbs up, all of that good stuff. And I'll be back next Monday with yet another episode. So until next time, this is Chris Apollo, and this was yet another experiment. Experiment.